This program is made possible by BibleWayMedia.org, overseen by the Uloga Church of Christ in Uloga, Oklahoma. You're listening to Opening the Scriptures with Don Boyd. Welcome to the program today. This is Don Boyd with the Moody Church of Christ. I want to welcome you to Opening the Scriptures. Today we're going to continue our studies in the book of Job in Job chapter 37. Job 37 is the last chapter here of Elihu's uh, speech there to Job, and we're going to get into God's, uh, whenever God comes in and speaks as well today in chapter 38. But we got down to Job 37, 11 last time, so that's where we want to start. And Elihu, here in chapter 37, verse 11, says that by watering the earth, God empties the clouds and disperses the storms. Again, Job 37, 11. Also by watering, he wearieth the thick cloud, he scattereth the bright cloud. The word scattereth there from the Hebrew word puts means, according to Strong's, to dash in pieces, literally or figuratively, especially to disperse. And then also he mentions the bright cloud. The word bright there from the Hebrew word or means illumination or concretely luminary in every sense, including lightning, happiness, etc. And again, that's Strong's definition. And then the word cloud from the Hebrew word anon, a cloud is covering the sky, that is the nimbus or thunder cloud. Again, Strong's definition. In Job 37.12, Elihu says that storms move about at God's bidding, Job 37.12. And it is turned round about by his counsels, that they may do whatsoever he commandeth them upon the face of the world in the earth. God's natural laws are directed to do God's bidding. Albert Barnes stated this concerning this verse, and I quote, The idea is that even the clouds which appear so capricious in their movements are really under the direction of God and are accomplishing his purposes. They do not move at haphazard, but they are under the control of one who intends to accomplish important purposes by them. Elihu had made this observation respecting lightning in Job 36, 30 to 33, and now he says that the same thing was true of the clouds. The investigations of science have only served to confirm this and to show that even the movements of the clouds are regulated by laws which have been ordained by a being of infinite intelligence, unquote. And in verse 13 of Job 37, Elihu mentions three purposes for which God uses his weather patterns. Job 37, 13. He causeth it to come, whether for correction, or for his land, or for mercy. So God uses rain and storms for three purposes. Number one, the execution of punishment. For example, the flood of Noah's day. Second purpose, number two, to replenish the moisture for the land. And then the third purpose, God's loving kindness for mankind. Albert Barnes made this comment, and I quote, 
these various uses to which the lightning, the storm, and the rain could be made subservient under the divine direction seem to have been one of the main ideas in the mind of Elihu, showing the supremacy and the majesty of God. And then in verses 14 through 24 of Job 37, Elihu mentions here the wonderful works of God for Job to consider. In verse 14, Elihu says to Job, Consider what has been said about how God can control the weather and use it for his purposes. Again, this is Job 37, 14. Hearken unto this, O Job, stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. The word hearken from the Hebrew word azan. Strong says it means to broaden out the ear with the hand. That is by implication to listen. And then for the phrase stand still, Albert Barnes puts it this way, quote, in a posture of reverence and attention, unquote. Adam Clark puts it this way, quote, hearken unto this, hear what I say on the part of God, stand still, enter into a deep contemplation on the subject, and consider, weigh everything, examine separately and collectively, and draw right conclusions from the whole. And then the wondrous works of God, endless in their variety, stupendous in their structure, complicated in their parts, indescribable in their relations and connections, and incomprehensible in the mode of their formation, in the cohesion of their parts, and in the ends of their creation, unquote. Now, I find it interesting here that Clark here is saying, you know, about the things that God has done, we are to do the very same thing whenever it comes to religious teaching. Hear what is said on the part of God, enter into deep contemplation on the subject, and then weigh everything, examine separately and collectively, and then draw the right conclusions from that investigation. We need to do that in the religious world today because there are many false doctrines out there in the world that people are believing just because mom and dad believed it and grandpa and grandpa believed it. They were this denomination and I'm going to be that denomination. No. Hear what the word of God says. Contemplate it. Consider it. Weigh everything Examine it separately, collectively, and draw the right conclusions from that investigation, not the wrong conclusions like the denominational world has. But anyway, in Job 37:15, he says, Job, can you explain how God controls various aspects of the weather? Job 37:15, dost thou know? when God disposed them and caused the light of his cloud to shine. So the clouds, the wind, the cold, the snow, the sky, can you explain these things, Job? In verse 16, 
He says, Job, can you explain how the clouds are suspended in the air? Can you explain that, Job? Well, verse 16 says, Dost thou know the balancings of the clouds, the wondrous works of him which is perfect in knowledge? The clouds are so full of water, so why don't they fall to the earth? Well, according to www.sciencealert.com, and this is from February 19th, 2015, and I quote, Researchers have calculated that the average cumulus cloud, which is that nice white fluffy kind you see on a sunny day, weigh an incred or weighs an incredible 500,000 kilograms or 1.1 million pounds, unquote. So how does this cloud that weighs 1.1 million pounds how does that water stay in the air? Albert Barnes made this comment, he who can command the lightning and hold the clouds suspended in the air, Elihu infers, must be perfect in knowledge. To a being who can do this, everything must be known, unquote. In other words, omniscience, perfect in knowledge. And then verse 17 of Job 37, Elihu says, the south wind brings warmth, but how? Job 37, 17, how are thy garments, or how thy garments are warm when he quieteth the earth by the south wind? In other words, Joe, can you explain how the south wind warms your clothes when God causes the weather to be calm? Dave Miller in class notes made this comment, quote, if you cannot explain weather patterns, etc., shouldn't you have at the same or shouldn't you have the same attitude toward what is happening to you? Why challenge God to a day in court? Unquote. In verse 18, he says, Job, can you assist God in spreading out the sky? Job 37, 18. Hast thou with him spread out the sky, which is strong and as a molten looking glass? Job, in other words, where were you when God created the sky? The literal translation puts verse 18 this way. Can you beat out the expanse with him hard like a cast mirror? Well, the sky is clear and transparent and firm and permanent. The sky is on display as one of the wondrous works of God that he made to display his glory. In verse 19, Elihu says, Job, teach us what to say to God. Job 37, 19. Teach us what we shall say unto him, for we cannot order our speech by reason of darkness. <clears throat> In other words, Job, we are ignorant of God's ways. That's talking about the darkness. What words can we use to approach such a being as God? 
tell me if you know. So Elihu is using irony or sarcasm here because Job said he knows what he's going to say. Elihu says, teach us. In verse 20, Elihu says, Job, why do you believe you would be able to argue with God? Job 37, 20. Shall it be told him that I speak? If a man speak, surely he shall be swallowed up. So if a man tries to argue with God or contend with him in a debate, he would be destroyed. And then in Job chapter 37, verse 21, he says, Job, you cannot look at the sun when the clouds are blown away. How do you expect to see the dazzling appearance of God face to face? Job 37:21. And now men see not the bright light which is in the clouds, but the wind passeth and cleanseth them. Well, Job had expressed his desire to meet God face to face. In Job chapter 9, look at verses 32 to 35. Job chapter 9, verses 32 to 35. For he is not a man as I am, that I should answer him, and we should come together in judgment. Neither is there any daysman betwixt us that might lay his hand upon us both. Let him take his rod away from me, and let not his fear terrify me. Then would I speak and not fear him. But it is not so with me. And then look at Job 13, 18 to 22. Job 13, 18 to 22. Behold now, I have ordered my cause. I know that I shall be justified. <clears throat> Who is he that will plead with me? For now, if I would hold my tongue, I shall give up the ghost. Only do not two things unto me, then will I not hide myself from thee. Withdraw thy hand far from me, and let not thy dread make me afraid. Then call thou, and I will answer. Or let me speak, and answer thou me. So Job had expressed his desire to meet God face to face there. Adam Clark here says, and I quote, Elihu seems to refer to the insufferable brightness of the sun. Can any man look at the sun shining in his strength when a clear and strong wind has purged the sky from clouds and vapors? Much less can any gaze on the majesty of God. Every creature must sink before him. What execrably or bad, dangerous folly in man to attempt to arraign God, his, God's, conduct, unquote. Albert Barnes stated this, and I quote, There's a reason to believe that as Elihu delivered the sentiments recorded in the close of this chapter, he meant to describe God as if he were seen to be approaching, and that the symbols of his presence were discovered in the gathering tempest and storm, unquote. Well, Elihu may refer to a bright, dazzling light coming from the north and attribute it to God's approach in chapter 37, verse 22. 
He says, fair weather cometh out of the north. God, or with God, is terrible majesty. Now, the phrase fair weather there from the Hebrew word zahab, Strong says this, from an unused root meaning to shimmer, gold, figuratively something gold colored that is yellow as oil a clear sky. Now, the literal translation states verse 22 this way, gold splendor comes out of the north. God is awesome in his majesty. Albert Barnes says this, and I quote, it seems probable to me that the idea is wholly, totally different and that Elihu means to say that a bright dazzling light was seen in the northern sky like burnished gold, which was a fit symbol of the approaching deity. The image is that of the heavens darkened with the tempest, the lightnings playing, the thunder rolling, and then the wind seeming to brush away the clouds in the north and disclosing in the opening a bright dazzling appearance like burnished gold that bespoke the approach of God. The word is never used in the sense of fair weather, unquote. And then in verse 23, Elihu says that God is beyond our power to comprehend, Job 37:23. Touching the Almighty, we cannot find him out. He is excellent in power and in judgment and in plenty of justice. He will not afflict. So Job, God is just in everything that he does, and he has not done wrong. He will not do wrong, and he has not done you wrong, Job. And then in verse 24, Elihu says, those who are wise fear God, Job 37, 24. Men do therefore fear him. He respecteth not any that are wise of heart. So those who consider themselves to be wise of heart, in other words, they do their own thing, God has no respect for them. Albert Barnes states this concerning the verse, and I quote, This is the sum of all that Elihu had to say, that God was original and independent, that he did not ask counsel of people in his dealings, that he was great and glorious and inscrutable, which means unfathomable, in his plans, and that people therefore should bow before him with profound submission and adoration, unquote. We'll kind of sum up the chapter. Adam Clark did this, or states this, and I quote, the evidence of the divine presence throng on his eyes and mind. The incomprehensible glory and excellency of God confound all his powers of reasoning and description. He cannot arrange his words by reason of darkness. And he concludes with stating that to poor weak man, God must forever be incomprehensible 
and to him a subject of deep religious fear and reverence. Just then the terrible majesty of the Lord appears. Elihu is silent. The rushing mighty wind for which the description of the thunder and lightning had prepared poor, confounded, astonished Job proclaims the presence of Jehovah. And out of this whirlwind, God answers for and proclaims himself. Reader, canst thou not conceive something of what these men felt? Art thou not astonished, perplexed, confounded, in reading over these descriptions of the thunder of God's power? Prepare then to hear the voice of God himself out of this whirlwind, unquote. Well, we come to chapter 38 in the book of Job, and Job finally gets what he asked for. Back in Job chapter 13, verse 22, Job chapter 13, verse 22, Then call thou, and I will answer, or let me speak, and answer thou me. And then in Job 31:35, Job 31:35, Oh, that one would hear me. Behold, my desire is that the Almighty would answer me, and that mine adversary had written a book. Job wanted an answer from God, but it's not quite what Job had expected. Wayne Jackson, on page 79 of his work, The Book of Job, makes this comment, and I quote, In a series of more than 70 rapid-fire questions, the Lord bludgeons Job to his knees. The patriarch will finally see himself as he is, compared to the great God of the universe. An ignoramus who rambled on, speaking, complaining, accusing, without adequate knowledge of the Lord's character and his ways. Unquote. Well, in verses 1 to 3, God answers Job. Chapter 38, verse 1. Jehovah now answers Job, or yeah, Jehovah answers Job out of the storm. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, "The word Lord there, you'll notice in the King James version, is in all caps, which is translated from the word Jehovah, which means the self-existent one." Well. God answers Job in particular out of the storm that was approaching. And it is hard for us to imagine the thundering voice of God that Job, Elihu, Zophar, Bildad, and the other, <laughs> forget his name now, uh, Eliphaz, there he is, what he what they are hearing. First, Job, are you, who are you to question the deep things of God which you cannot understand? Verse 2, who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? 
You see, Job is here accused by God of trying to make what is happening to him make sense of that through man's reasoning, which makes it more unclear and shows the folly in trying to do that. Job, if you do not have the knowledge required to make the accusations you have made against God, don't do it. You don't have that knowledge that is required to do what you're trying to do. God tells Job to get ready for the debate that he was asking for there in verse 3 of chapter 38. Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee and answer thou me. God knew that Job needed humility. And God was going to teach Job humility toward the God of the universe, the ruler of the universe. God tells Job to prepare for the conflict and put forth your best effort. Albert Barnes stated this, and I quote, <clears throat> Job had undertaken to tell what he knew of the divine administration, and God now calls upon him to show his claims to the office of such an expositor. So wise a man as he was, who could pronounce on the hidden counsels of the Most High with so much confidence, could assuredly explain those things which pertain to the visible creation, unquote. So since God, or Job had spoken with such confidence, God will now demand that Job answer these questions to test Job's knowledge. So, Job, these questions have easy answers to God, but do you know them? Well, first, in verses 4 through 15, God asked Job a series of questions to show Job that God is the God of nature. First, Job 38, 4, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Uh, tell me how it was done. Job 38.4 Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Well, of course, back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. doesn't say anything about Job. In Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9. Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathered the waters of the sea together as in heap. He laid up the depth and storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. So again, it was only God. And you'll notice that it states there that by the word of the Lord, verse 6, were the heavens made, the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Go back to Genesis chapter 1 and see what's talking about. 
verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. There's the breath of God, and there was light. Verse 6, God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. God said it, the breath of his mouth, and it happened. Verse 9, God said, let the waters under heaven be gathered together into one place. Let the dry land appear. He spoke, and it happened. Verse 11, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed. God spoke, and it happened by the breath of his mouth. And you could do verse 14, verse 20, verse 21, verse 24, and verse 26. God spoke, and these things happened. By the breath of his mouth, he made all the host of them. And then in verse 5 of Job 38, God said, Job, who determined the correct measurements for the earth and its gravity and orbit? Job 38, 5. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Wayne Jackson, on page 126 of his work, The Book of Job, made this comment, and I quote, The Earth's diameter at the equator is 7,926 miles, while at the poles it is only 7,899. Our globe is not a perfect sphere. Is there any design in such dimensions? Price has written, quote, the simple fact is that if the world were a perfect sphere, its rotation would pile up the waters of the ocean around the equator to such an enormous extent, drawing them from all the northern and southern parts. In short, the shape of our world shows design on the part of the one who created it and who adapted its size, form, density, etc., to its rotation, and to all the other physical laws that now govern it, unquote. In other words, God is saying, Job, what holds up the planet? What keeps everything in order? And in verse 6, Job's, God says, Job, where are the foundations of the earth fastened? Job 38.6 Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened, or who hath laid the cornerstone thereof? The word foundations there from the Hebrew word Eden, Brown Driver Briggs says it means this, base, pedestal, socket, strong, firm. And then the word fastened the Hebrew word tabah, again, Brown Driver Briggs definition, to sink, sink into, sink down, pierce, settle down, drown, be settled, be planted. Now, to go along with those two definitions of foundations and fasten, Wayne Jackson on page 126 of his book made this comment, and I quote, here, foundations is the term Eden, meaning a socket. 
used of the sockets into which pegs were inserted in order to secure the planks of the tabernacle. Cross-reference Exodus 26, 1 and following. And the word fastened, tabah, means to sink down. It is now believed that the earth is covered by an outer crust of rock some 7 to 30 miles thick, which in turn rests upon a mantle or foundation of heavy rock called peridotite, which extends down into the earth, heart of the earth some 1,800 miles. Burst upon, or based upon seismic data, scientists suggest that the great land masses of our planet are anchored into sockets which plunge deep into the Earth's mantle, averaging 300 miles in depth, unquote. So God asked Job, uh, who did this? Who, who laid the cornerstone? On what is the Earth founded? Well, God then refers to the creation and great joy there was in heaven because of the creation, Job 38, 7. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So the angels, the sons of God there, in this quotation, apparently created prior to the earth's quote, uh, creation, sang and shouted for joy when God created the universe. You think about the morning stars sang together, all the sons of God shouted for joy. That's that Hebrew parallelism, both talking about the same thing, the angels there shouting for joy. So God says, Job, where were you when this happened? Did you hear the angels praising God for his creating wonders? In verse 8, he says, Job, do you control the massive magnitude of the ocean? Job 38, 8. Or who shut up the sea with doors when it break forth, as if it had issued out of the womb? Well, God fixed the limits of the raging ocean. God restrained the waters of the ocean by placing his fence around them. Albert Barnes says, and I quote, All the images here are taken from childbirth. The ocean is represented as being born and then as invested with clouds and darkness as its covering and its swaddling bands, unquote. Wayne Jackson stated on one page 127 of his book, and I quote, it may be difficult for the average person to realize how threatened by water we land dwellers are. About 71% of the Earth's surface is water. Moreover, the height of the land, average height of the land, is 2,250 feet, while the average depth of the ocean is 13,000 feet. The ocean is thus nearly six times as deep as the land is high in general average. If the Earth's surface were smoothed out, 
water would cover the earth more than two miles deep, unquote. Well, God then refers to the ocean coming into being and he using a cloud resting upon it and covering it, Job 38, verse 9. He goes, when I made the cloud, the garment thereof, and thick darkness, a swaddling band for it. Well, he's referring back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. It says there, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Albert Barnes says concerning Job 38.9, and I quote, the time here referred to is that before the light of the sun arose upon the earth, before the dry land appeared, and before the animals and peoples had been formed. Then the newborn ocean lay carefully enveloped in clouds and darkness under the guardian care of God. The night rested upon it, and the mists hovered over it." Unquote. In verse 10, God says, Job, who marked the boundary for the ocean? Job 38.10. And break up for it my decreed place and set bars and doors. The literal translation says, and I broke my limit on it and set bars and doors. Well, referring back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 9. Genesis 1, 9, And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. Adam Clark said concerning Job 38, 10, and I quote, And let the dry land appear. This formed the bars and doors of the sea the land being everywhere a barrier against the encroachments and inundations of the sea, and great rivers, bays, creeks, etc., the doors by which it passes into the interior of continents, etc., unquote. In verse 11 of Job 38, God said, Job, who told the ocean where its limits are? Job 38.11, and said, Hitherto shalt thou come, but no further, and here shall thy proud waves be stayed. So God made such vast amounts of water there to regulate temperature and supply water vapor for rain but the ocean can only encroach so far, and there it is held in its God-given place. Job, you cannot speak to the ocean and control it like God does. And then in verse 12, he says, Job, are you responsible for the dawning of each new day? Job 38, 12. Hast thou commanded the morning since thy days and caused the day spring to know its place? Uh, day spring there from a word that means dawn. Do you know this, Job, in your lifetime? 
Have you ordered the light of the morning to shine? Albert Barnes, and I quote, The day spring, Shakar, means the aurora, the dawn, the morning. The mention of its place here seems to be an allusion to the fact that it does not always occupy the same position. At one season of the year, it appears on the equator at another north and at another south of it, and is constantly varying its position. Yet it always knows its place. It never fails to appear whereby the long-observed laws it ought to appear." Unquote. In verse 13, God says that he causes the light of morning to spread to the remote parts of the earth and reveal everything that is there. Job 38:13 that it might take hold of the ends of the earth that the wicked might be shaken out of it. The light shakes the darkness out and generally evil people do their wicked work deeds in the in the dark. So the wicked are shaken from their evil deeds by the light which suddenly shines upon them. In verse 14, God says the patterns and texture of the earth are shown by the light. Job 38:14. It is turned as clay to the seal, and they stand as a garment. Adam Clark makes this comment on this verse, and I quote, The earth, like soft clay, is capable of modifying itself in endless ways and assuming infinite forms. As proof of this, see the astonishing variety of plants, flowers, and fruits, and the infinitely diversified hues, odors, taste, consistency, and properties of its vegetable productions, unquote. So when God shines his light upon the earth, as it is mentioned here in verse 14, as clay to a seal, when you put that seal stamp on the clay and remove it, it shows what that stamp is. It reveals that, just like the light reveals the texture and such of the earth. In verse 15, God says, His light shines on the world, and the wicked flee from it. Verse 15, And from the wicked their light is withholden, and the high arm shall be broken. God's light clothes the world in beauty, but it also crushes the power of the wicked. And then in verses 16 to 21, God asked Job a series of questions that only God can know. Verses 16 to 21. First, Job, have you walked at the bottom of the ocean? Verse 16. Hast thou entered into the springs of the sea, or hast thou walked in search of the depth? Wayne Jackson on page 127 of his book made this comment, and I quote, are there submarine springs that issue from the ocean floor? The earliest secular reference to such was recorded by the Roman geographer Strabo, 
who lived from 63 to uh, 63 BC to AD 21. Submarine springs are known off the coast of Greece, Italy, Israel, and Syria. Off the coast of Australia, fresh water may be dipped in abundance from the sea. In 1976, the U.S. Geological Survey discovered fresh water in the Atlantic along the coast from New England to Georgia, unquote. And then Wayne Jackson also made this comment on one page on page 127, and I quote again, Job was also asked, have you walked in the recesses of the deep? It is a similar passage, or in a similar passage, David referred to the channels of the sea, 2 Samuel 22:16. The science of oceanography dates from about 1873. In that year, the Challenger Expedition, 1873 to 76, commenced the first scientific exploration of the ocean floor. During this study, a canyon five and one half miles deep was discovered in the Pacific. Since that time, numerous other canyons have been found. One near the Philippines is over seven miles deep, unquote. So God is saying, Job, have you walked seven miles under the ocean surface to walk on the floor of the ocean? No, Job hadn't done that. We haven't done that yet. We're not that intelligent. In verse 17, Job, have you made a visit to the realm of the dead? Job 38:17. Have the gates of death been opened unto thee, or hast thou seen the doors of the shadow of death? God is referring to the region of Sheol, which is the Hebrew term, or Hades, which is the Greek term, where the spirits of the dead are now residing. So he's saying, Job, have you been to Hades to visit the dead? Have you seen them? In verse 18, he says, Job, do you know the circumference of the globe? Job 38, 18. Hast thou perceived the breadth of the earth? Declare if thou knowest it all. Well, today we know the circumference of the earth to be 24,901 miles. But Job didn't know that. And then in verse 19, God says, Job, what is the source of light and where is the place of darkness? Job 38, 19. Where is the way where light dwelleth? And as for darkness, where is the place thereof? Well, way there from the Hebrew word derek, Strong says it means a road is trodden, figuratively a course of life or mode of action. And then the place there for darkness, the word place from the Hebrew word makam, Strong says it means this, properly a standing, that is a spot, but widely used of a locality generally or specifically. So God says that light dwells in a traveled path and darkness is said to be in a place. 
Wayne Jackson on page 128 of his book, the book of Job, made this comment, and I quote, Scientists now know that light is a form of energy called radiant energy and that it travels in electromagnetic waves at the speed of 186,000 miles per second or 660 million miles per hour in a straight line. For example, it takes about eight minutes for light to travel its path from the sun to the earth, unquote. But then when you talk about darkness, how, how do we define darkness? Well, we can only define it as the absence of light. But where does it dwell? We don't know, but God does. And then in verse 20 and 21, God says, Job, are you so well acquainted with light that you can guide it to its place of abode? Job 38, 20 and 21. That thou shouldest take it to the bound thereof, and that thou shouldest know the path to the house thereof. Be, uh, knowest thou it? Because thou wast then born, or because the number of thy days is great? Job, where were you when God said, Genesis 1, 3, let there be light, and there was light. Where were you, Job? Were you that old? Were you then born? No, Job could not claim to be that old or to have that knowledge. God then asked Job a series of questions about the weather in verses 22 to 30. In verse 22 of chapter 38, he says, God says, Job, do you know the treasures of the snow and hail? Job 38, 22. Hast thou entered into the treasures of the snow, or hast thou seen the treasures of the hail? The word treasures there from the Hebrew word atzar, Strong says it's defined this way as a depository. So snow and hail are said to be stored up and kept in a depository until God uses them to accomplish his purposes. So this would mean that God is asking Job if he knows where God keeps the snow and the hail. Well, Don Deffenbaugh in the 16th Spiritual Sword Lectureship book on page 387 also said this could be a possibility, and I quote, there is also the possibility that the passage refers to the great agricultural benefit that comes from the snow and hail. It is a known fact that certain chemicals needed to make the earth fertile come from the snow, hence the treasures of the snow, unquote. In verse 23, God says that he, God, has carefully treasured up the snow and hail until he needs them to bring calamity on his enemies. Job 38, 23, which I have reserved against the time of trouble, against the day of battle and war. Well, God used great hailstones to overwhelm his enemies at different times. Let's look at two examples. Let's look at 
Ezekiel 13, 11 first. Ezekiel chapter 13, verse 11. The verse says, Say unto them which daub it with untempered mortar, that it shall fall. There shall be an overflowing shower, and yea, or ye, O great hailstone shall fall, and a stormy wind shall rend it. Look also at Joshua chapter 10, verse 11. Joshua chapter 10, verse 11. It says, and it came to pass as they fled from before Israel and were going or in the going down to Beth Haran that the Lord cast down great hailstones from heaven upon them unto Ezekiah and they died. They were more which died with hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with the sword. So God used those hailstones as a weapon there. In Job 38, 24, God says, Job, do you know how the light is distributed over the earth or how the east wind spreads itself across the earth? Job 38, 24. By what way is the light parted which scattereth the east wind upon the earth. Wayne Jackson here, again, page 128 of his book, stated this, Though the Lord may simply be asking the patriarch if he knows how light is distributed on the earth, nonetheless it is an amazing scientific fact that light can literally be parted. When a narrow beam of sunlight passes at a slant into a triangular transparent prism, the sunlight is broken up into a band of seven colored lights called a spectrum. Sir Isaac Newton was the first scientist to demonstrate this, but God's prism, the rainbow, had been heralding this fact for centuries. So the spectrum there, God's rainbow, not man's rainbow. Well, we're coming to, a, looks like we're coming to an end of time here in our lessons today. So why don't we stop there in Job 38, 24, and in Lord willing, we will take that up again with God speaking in Job 38, 25 next time. So again, this is Don Boyd. I want to thank you for tuning in to be with us, and we look forward to being with you at the next lesson. When you're in Moody, Missouri, you're invited to visit the Moody Church of Christ, located on Highway E in Moody, Missouri. The congregation there meets on Sunday morning at 10 a.m. for Bible class, 11 a.m. for worship, and then again at 6 p.m. for Sunday evening worship. They also meet at 6 p.m. on Wednesday night for Bible study. We thank you for tuning in today. We hope you enjoyed this program. You can find out more about Bible Media by visiting us at BibleWayMedia.org. You can also find us on several uh, social media platforms now. You can find us not only on Facebook, but you can also can find us on Tumblr. You can also find us on the Twitter alternative known as Telegram and on the Facebook alternative known as MeWe. We hope you enjoyed this program. We hope you will share with others. And as always, we thank you for listening.